the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Everyone, welcome to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm here on this Monday. I just heard a term, actually, by the way. It's what is it? Monday. 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 You want to hear the definition? I do. Uh, the moment when Sunday stops feeling like a Sunday and the anxiety of Monday kicks in. Ah, Monday. <laughs> I always. Uh, I remember when I first was preaching and then, or first pastoring, and I'd have Monday off. I can remember that time we would go to this small group with these really good friends of ours, and they all started work on Monday. Right. And I was having Monday off. Yeah, right. <laughs> The very different vibe between us on a Sunday evening where I was, like, totally chill. You're just and, like, drinking like a fish. Exactly. And I'm already, like, tired from the church, but now I'm, like, have this day ahead of me that's going to be off. And their tension was just rising. It was always a weird night. It was you would actually, weird. like, notice the difference in your 100%. general demeanor? Uh, but but they would uh, – they you could tell they would start, like – uh, like starting to be like, hey, are we done here? Whereas I'm like, hey, we got it's like the you weekend. You guys want to go to a movie? Yeah. <laughs> it was always a strange dynamic. It was always a little weird. And but you yes. don't take Mondays off anymore now, though. Well, you know, the radio show has kind of put everything in in a little bit of that's flux. true, so right? I'm trying to I'm trying to move my day off to to later in the week, but it. it Talk I shouldn't have me. even asked. Talk to <laughs> me on a week-by-week basis right now. We will be posting Brian's schedule each and every week. This may have been part of my uh, time out with my wife on Friday in our discussion. <laughs> well, got in the hot water, and we're only two minutes in. Monday, first segment. Here we go. Let's tell them where they can find us. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, uh, on Twitter at Common Good Talk, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good wherever it is you get your podcasts. And if you you know like and rate and review, that actually helps us. And if you share it, that helps us even more. And if you were in Chicagoland, even for a moment yesterday, uh, you are aware of the shift that's mm-hmm. happening within the Chicago Cubs involving Joe Madden. So before we even dive into that, I figured let's hear from the man himself a little bit, and then we'll react. How about that? Excuse the just the the wins. I mean, listen, five seasons for the, anybody that wants to denigrate anything that we've done over the last five years, come see me at some point. Uh, there's nothing to denigrate. There's nothing to bemoan. There's nothing to lament. It's been fabulous. I uh, anybody would take that five year run, including a World Series championship, for the first time in 108 years. Come on, come on. So. Um, it's it's a wonderful day. I'm really excited about the future. I'm excited for, for the Cubs' future. And we were talking about this yesterday also, and I said I, I will remain a Cubs fan, absolutely. And it'll be very much like the players. Um, I've talked to them already, and I, I insist that they stay in touch, and I'm going to stay in touch with them. I'm just talking to different guys about you know drills and whatever and, and, and uh, weaknesses and how can I get better. So we're still even talking about that. So I'll, I'll be eternally attached um, but and as you I just mentioned, I'm really looking forward to the future. Also, um, I think I got a solid three to five minimum. 
Okay, so what's uh, what's going on there? Yeah, so uh, the Cubs, uh, any Cub fans out there know that, that the year did not end the way that people wanted to. It was right. pretty good collapse. Did you see they went from like 80% postseason probability to 5% in the span of like four days. I know. Uh, and so uh, a really disheartening end of the year. But you can't argue he's been the greatest five-year run of any Cubs manager ever. And uh, he's not being fired. That's what people are getting wrong a little bit. He's not being fired. Right. His contract, they never right. renewed his contract. Right. So he's basically a free agent. And uh, what's striking to me is how mutual it sounds. And you never know how mutual it actually is. But it actually sounds really mutual between him and Theo Epstein. Weirdly and mutual. Weirdly <laughs> mutual. Uh, like, to the point, and, and sometimes Madden comes across that way. Like, it's like, hey, everybody, we're just chilling with a glass of wine. All is well. Uh, I'm sure the conversations over the last couple of months have probably been a lot more heated behind closed doors. Uh, but at, this is one of those where you could see it coming. And it's hard to get your mind around because he is undoubtedly the most... Um, he he's the most successful Cubs manager of all time, uh, especially for just a five year run. Mm. But yet it feels like it should be over, and that's what yeah. I think a lot of people are trying to wrestle with. And he's actually trying to help people through. He's like, no, I'm good. The Cubs are good. Everybody's happy. And I don't know. It feels uh, it feels weird to be like, there's got to be more to the story, right? There's always more to the story. But this seems pretty mutual. And let's be honest, he's going to have a job when he wants a job. Oh, for sure. If he wants one tomorrow, he's going to have one tomorrow. If he wants to take a year off, he will have it the the second he says, I want to manage. And so it's nice to have that job security, too. Like He's like, you know what? I'm excited for the next run. I I like what he said here. He said, I was talking about a book I recently read, Never Deny the Truth of Bad News. In a way, it's bad news, but also good news. At the same time, we're both going to move on. The Cubs are going to flourish, and hopefully I get a chance to do this somewhere else. But there's no tears shed. It's a good moment for everybody, and we're both excited about our futures. Is this guy human? I know. Is exactly. he human? Exactly. He just seems so chi, so centered, right? Like, hey, man. Yeah. It's all good. Sometimes gravy. it feels like an act, but other times you're like, well, I'm going to take it. This has been the weird one for me, and uh, I don't bring this up like either of us are trying to quit our jobs. But uh, sometimes when you're a pastor or other things where you lead organizations, there is that moment where you're like, are they still hearing me? Like, am I still the right voice? Like, not mm. am I bad or good. Right. But it almost feels like Madden saying, like, the Cubs, I recognize, need something different. And mm. he's like, it doesn't make me a bad manager. Mm. It doesn't make them bad people. They're just saying they need a new voice in the room. Yeah, right. And I think Epstein obviously agreed with that assessment. And Madden's saying, maybe I need a new challenge out yeah. there. And so... I don't even know what I'm asking. It's just an interesting it is. thought process because to take in the pastor world, a lot of times you know pastors are there twenty years, yeah, right, thirty years, right. all these years, and you wonder does there come a point? I remember reading a survey once that said, or research that said, your most effective years as pastors are years six to ten. That that's when people hear you the most. Oh boy! Well, what do you do when it's year eleven? Yikes! You know what I mean? I'm on, I'm on your ten this year, so <laughs> yeah, or I'm, I'm going in, into year I'm in eleven. Trouble. Yeah, at one place I should say. Right, right. Not, right. Oh, oh, okay. At one place. Oh, uh, okay. And so oh, I think we're seeing that a little bit in here with Madden going. I really think what this is is Madden going. Listen. It's gotten a little stale. They need a new voice. I need a new thing. Nobody needs to be mad at each other. That's at least the public face. That's how it's coming across. But man, it's not not really the way it ever works. So I think everyone's having trouble trying to figure this out. But it's been like a love fest for Joe Madden. Well, you talk about them sharing a bottle of wine together. I was like, are you guys dating now? What's what's going on here? And part of me wants to, with the remaining two minutes, go like philosophical and like life application. 
But the other part of me wants to ask, is David Ross the guy? I think so. You think so? It's, they've been trying to tiptoe around this so much, but <laughs> he said he wants to be a manager. Yes. The Cubs love him. The, the, he fits. The Cubs are wanting to do with like what the Astros or the Phillies or others have done. The Yankees bring in these like young guys who are going to really fall in line with the uh, with the management, like with analytics and stuff. Right. They don't want to pay a guy $6 million a year like Madden was making. And... Uh, it, Ross, the other day there was a rumor going around. USA Today wrote an article saying that Ross is going to be the number one guy. Yeah. Like the worst. And they kind of denied it. And then there was a picture of Epstein during the game, and someone picked out Ross was in the background in his luxury box. <laughs> oh, no kidding. Yeah. So, oh, I did not see that. <laughs> so it, I, don't think, I don't think it's like a given. You know, I think he, sure. there's going to be an interview process, and they'll interview other people. But let's just put it this way. I think if I were a betting man and you had made me bet on who's the next Cubs manager going to be, if you even heard David Ross's words yesterday, he was still being really diplomatic, but yes. he actually said, you know, there's a great draw to that team and the dugout for me. You're like, okay, that even changed now that Madden's got because He had a smirk, too, yeah. while he was saying it. This whole time, he's been very reverential to his old manager, Madden, right? Yeah. And But now that Madden's gone, you can kind of see the tea leaves here. So I'd be surprised if it wasn't David Ross, and it feels like it could work. I think you're right, man. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk with Cameron Cole, Director of Youth Ministries at the Cathedral Church of the Advent. And uh, he's also deeply involved in Rooted, which is a ministry that helps really kind of disciple people. And I think that's going to be a really interesting, timely conversation, especially given a lot of the stuff that you and I have been talking about the last couple of weeks. That's what's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. It's Ian Simpkins here. And I remember the first time that I actually learned about Thriving Financial. I was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and me and two other pastors had this dream, this idea to better care for the marriages in our communities. And so we started to dream up this conference idea. What if we actually hosted a local conference to pour into marriages and couples in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in our communities? And Thrive and Financial kind of came alongside and not only like made the conference possible, but they were actually interested in partnering with us as churches, as pastors, to help people not only be wise with money, but to live more generously, which was always a value that I had and always struggled to find organizations that actually wanted to help our churches do that. And so that's actually kind of the beginning of what's been a really beautiful journey and relationship with Thrive and to actually be wise with money, to live generously, and to help other people do the same. And so if that interests you, I'd encourage you to go to Thrivent.com to learn more. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, on podcast, on Twitter, at Common Good Talk. And I mentioned just a couple of minutes ago, we're going to have Cameron Cole, the Director of Youth Ministry at the Cathedral Church of the Advent here on the show. Cameron, welcome to The Common Good. Hey guys, how are you all doing? We're doing great. We're doing really well, man. And one of the things we've been doing lately is letting our guests introduce themselves to the audience, however you would like to do that. So go ahead and introduce yourself to everybody. All right. Well, uh, as I said, I'm Cameron Cole, and I work at the Church of the Advent, Berlin, Alabama. I've been doing youth ministry for about 15 years, and uh, I'm the founding chairman of Rooted, uh, which is both a ministry and a movement that promotes gospel-centered youth ministry. Our desire is to uh, help parents and churches uh, more effectively disciple kids towards lifelong faith in Christ, uh, and our desire is to, uh, that every child would receive grace-filled, gospel-centered, Bible-saturated discipleship at church and at home. And uh, we have a conference coming up in Chicago uh, this week that we're really excited about. It's our second time to come to Chicago. And so 
Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful for this opportunity to talk about spiritual lives of kids and the importance of the gospel uh, in the lives of young people. That's great. So Ian, uh, we mentioned to you off air that both Ian and I are former youth pastors. Uh, we both loved it, did youth ministry for many years. And I'm wondering, how has youth ministry, you said in your 15 years, say over the 15 to 20 years, uh, how has youth ministry changed? How are students different? How how do we best disciple kids maybe differently than we did, say, 15, 20 years ago? That's a great question. You know, when I first started, uh, that was right at the time when a lot of these surveys were being done to examine the efficacy um, of youth ministries and churches at forming kids who had lasting faith in Christ. Uh, and so they were finding, uh, right around the time that I started, uh, that the majority of kids, some would say, you know, probably around 70% of kids were not returning to the church after high school. Uh, and so that kind of initiated this crisis in youth ministry. And, and then there was a second wave of research that looked at why. Why is it that kids are not returning to the church after high school? Why is it that our yeah. discipleship is ineffective? And, um, and you know, they found basically three factors. Uh, first, that churches weren't doing anything to educate and equip parents to invest in the spiritual lives of their kids, and that was the fault of the church, not the parents. Mm. Uh, secondly, it, kids were not being integrated into the church. They were in the nursery or children's chapel or youth worship uh, you know, during their time at a church, so they, they weren't really learning uh, how to navigate church membership and be prepared for adulthood in that way. Uh, and then the biggest, biggest factor was the theology of youth ministry, mm. uh, which the National Student Youth and Religion defined as moralistic, therapeutic deism. So basically what, what kids believed about Christianity didn't really even resemble biblical Christianity at all. And so I think that um, there have been uh, some responses to that, uh, some of which I think the, the churches are, are really much more focused on thinking about involving parents in the spiritual lives of kids. It, it can't just be the church. It has to be a cooperation. Right. Uh, between both the church and the parents, or it's just not going to be very effective. Uh, and I think there has been a, 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 a favorable amount of attention about trying to integrate kids into the church in a meaningful way so that they're working and serving with people of different generations in a manner that um, that prepares them to be a church attender uh, and a church contributor um, when they reach adulthood. That's super helpful. And, and as someone that was a youth pastor, this is, I think, Brian and I both, I was a bang, the, the drum that we were both banging, and I think it's it's often difficult, I think, to get the church as a whole to really buy into that. And I want to circle back to that, but you also wrote a book called Therefore I Have Hope, 12 Truths That Comfort, Sustain, and Redeem in Tragedy, which maybe you wouldn't share this, but I want to make sure that I did. It won World Magazine's 2018 Book of the Year wow. and was runner-up for the Gospel Coalition's Book of the Year. Uh, so I'm curious how that kind of intersects with the work that you do in student ministry, and, and what do you think we get wrong about how we actually like care for and pastor people in the midst of tragedy? Yeah, so I really appreciate you asking that question. So the premise of, of the book, Therefore Have Hope, uh, is that my uh, oldest child passed away about oh, six years ago. Wow. And I, um, you know, I, I'm a youth, I've been a youth pastor uh, for a number of years, and you know, I'm, I've had a really charmed life. I'm a white American male who grew up with financially comfortable parents who were really kind and loved me and uh, took me to church and school came easy and sports came easy and I went to the college I wanted and I married this really pretty sweet wife and had you know some nice looking children and all that kind of stuff and I really kind of thought of course I believe that God's good of course I believe in the gospel if you're Cameron Cole you should believe those mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. so I had this fear that what if something really bad happened to me 
would I lose my faith? Right. And so I identified the thing that I thought would cause me to lose my faith is if, is if one of my children died. Uh, and so I would, I just would worry about that a tremendous amount. I'd kind of fixate on that fear, mm. both of losing a child and losing my faith. Uh, and then it happened. And I was just so Man. surprised by, I kind of had these nightmares that I would turn away from the Lord. And I was so surprised that when it actually happened, mm. uh, and I received a call from my wife that she had found my son um, dead in his bed. Yeah. I, I, the first thing I said, and this is a praise the Lord kind of thing, not a spiritual performance thing. I said, Jesus rose from the dead. And that means that God is good. And this doesn't change that fact. Yeah. And what I found is that the Lord, uh, in my life, but also through the churches I've been in, have been preparing me for this moment where uh, even though something horrible had happened, I knew who God was based on His Word, and I had this narrative uh, of truth that I lived under that gave me this sense of hope that my life wasn't ruined, and uh, even though it was horrifically painful, I always had a sense of hope that the mm. Lord could heal me and redeem me. And so you know, the way that really intersects with youth ministry is, I think, normal experience for people of my generation, I'm about 40 years old, is that youth ministry was you come to church, you come to you know youth group, you play some games, mm-hmm. you have a short lesson. That lesson is usually something moralistic, uh, focused on not drinking and not having premarital sex and being nice. And then you play some emotionally driven music to try to encourage you to be good for a week. And there just was not a ton. So the normal experience for most kids in my generation was not that they were taught the Word uh, and taught God's truth in a really substantial way that prepared them for the challenges of faith and life, whatever those challenges may be. And so I think that with Rooted, um, one of the things that we're passionate about, and in my own ministry that we're passionate about, is, is, you know, we're not just trying to get kids in the door. Like, we're thinking about what comes out the door when they're 18 years old so that we're building in them a substantive foundation based on the gospel and based on Scripture that prepares them for the challenges of faith that they'll encounter when they're 28 and 38 and 48 and 58. Hmm. We want to build foundations. And so I think both, you know, both with Rooted in this book, a big passion of mine, a big passion of, of the Rudin movement is to really take kids' spiritual lives seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to, you know, in the school, like our kids, they are really challenged and they um, they learn hard things and they take on a big tasks and, you know, they're, they're taken to the furthest extent of their intellect. And we really want to do the same thing with kids in church. We don't want to water it down. We want to recognize that life is really hard. And, and anticipate that kids are going to experience tragic things or uh, an atheist philosophy professor. And so we want to be committed um, to giving them a really rich foundation in the Word by teaching them God's truth every week. Cameron, that's really good. Yeah. Man. And uh, just as a reminder to anyone listening, this year's annual conference is in Chicago, October 3rd to 5th, and it's for anyone who's involved in ministry to teens, that's parents included, you can register to go to rootedministry.com, and listeners can use the promo code 1160 for $10 off the cost of registration. Cameron Cole, thank you, thank you. so much for joining us on the show today. Yeah, thank you, guys. This has been Absolutely. a blast, man. Really appreciate it. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. I don't know what this says about me, but that makes me laugh every time. <laughs> it makes you laugh. Yeah. 
I thought you were going to say it inspires you. It makes no, it no, gets no, you going. No, no. This, song, this song's not a funny song. It's a it's a good song. Just the fact that we play it before <laughs> talking about preaching just makes me giggle a why? little bit. I don't know why. Listen, <laughs> I can't unpack the insanity that is my brain, Brian. I'm just here to report the news. Every time I, I've no, I've never heard any part of the rest of that song other than the little part that we do there. But every time I hear it, I'm like. Well, that's, that's saying something, because you promised four weeks ago that you'd go and watch the video. And, I did? Uh, yeah. You, well, well, we're going to... Promise pull, unfulfilled. We're going to pull up that audio. <laughs> you don't have to. I believe you, and I have not well, That's going to be our new intro to the segment, though, is you just going... Just go, I'll listen to it. I'll go back and listen to that song every time until it actually happens. <laughs> All right. I'm going to before next Monday. Well... I believe it when I see it. You can trust me. My word means something. Can I trust you? <laughs> this feels like an Aladdin Jasmine moment, and I'm not getting on the magic carpet. My, uh, me and my wife and my kids watch the Aladdin movie, not the, uh, not the, um, the cartoonish one, the not the Disney one. Thank you. That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> but like the Will Smith one that came out last year, we watched it this weekend. And bring it up. I liked it. Yeah, the remakes. I enjoy them, but the weird part about it is you. We all know what happens in Aladdin. Right. So you know right. what's coming. And right. the same was true with like Beauty and the Beast and stuff. So they're really well done. They're really fun. The songs are awesome. And there's always a little twist that's a little different. Right. But for the, the most end, part, it's but pretty. But in the end, it's Aladdin, right? And right. so, uh, yeah. But it was fun. It's funny you bring that up. Because that was a rousing that is, endorsement. That is what we did. I did enjoy it. I did. I don't think they're going to come after you. It's okay. You can, you can, be, you can be honest. All right, so we mentioned this uh, ad nauseum that Brian and I are both pastors. Monday is a weird day for pastors, whether they're introverted, extroverted, old, young, whatever. Like, it's just a strange kind of post-sermon, yep. post-church type of vibe, um, which in some ways, you know, feel really amped from the weekend. Either way, we try to dedicate a segment to talk a little bit about what we preached, but not just like give you a summary, but also kind of get into the head of a pastor a little bit and uh I have actually heard from people that it's weirdly helpful to sort of, really? oh, I wonder if my pastor feels that way, to which I would say, maybe. They do. It's very possible. <laughs> so why don't you tell us about what you preached yep. yesterday? Daniel chapter 2. So we're working through the book of Daniel, which is already an interesting one to go through. Right. And uh, Daniel chapter 2 uh, is just, a cr- the whole book's just crazy stories of, you know, at the end of one you're left with Daniel and the other three guys. Uh, they are in Babylonian captivity. They are in kind of King Nebuchadnezzar's court. And uh, Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar wakes up spooked from a dream. Uh, can't remember what it is. Brings in all his astrologers and his magicians and everything. And basically right. says, not only do I need you to interpret the dream, I need you to tell me the dream. And if you can't do it, I'm going to kill all of you. And right. they were like, what? And so no pressure. Making Taking 49 verses down into a lot, a lot shorter here. Daniel uh, says, give me an opportunity. He prays. God miraculously shows up uh, and he's able to interpret the dream. And so uh, went two different directions with it. It is weird, man. These old the, the stories are crazy, and you could just see people's eyes like, "What are you doing with this one?" Yeah. Uh, but one, I talked about how in the midst of unfairness, mm-hmm. uh, Daniel prayed, and Daniel uh, he tried to tie it into how unfair our own lives can be, and uh, that Daniel prayed. But then talked about the dream itself that all the kingdoms of this world are going away: Nebuchadnezzar, mm-hmm. the Romans, all the way down to us. Yeah, people like their eyes go like when I'm like, "Yeah, America's not going to last forever." Everyone's like, "What? <laughs> what?" Uh, but what will endure forever has always been, will always be, uh, is the kingdom of God. And so was able to really try to put people in that perspective. Whether life is terrible right now, know that God it will always be, and right. and the brokenness of this and all this stuff, but. 
Or if you're like hyper Mr. Politician guy, like no, get your priorities straight. Mm. Uh, so enjoyed it. Uh, I did tell a story about my wife. The uh, I, for the first time, do you ask your wife for her permission to tell stories about her? I absolutely do. I learned that lesson the hard way, so I did this time. Yeah. Okay, and she, my wife, texted me back. Thank you for that. <laughs> oh, good for you. But, uh, did you text her like as you were about to no, deliver the no, message? Okay. No. <laughs> but uh, told this story anyway about a fight that we had once because she was mad at me from a dream that she had. <laughs> oh yeah. So we talked about dreams and in the sermon. So it was good. I enjoyed it. And uh, it's just always fun to be together. I always go into Sunday mornings going, ah, is anyone going to be here? Or <laughs> is anyone going to show up? Am I actually going to say anything that matters? <laughs> like you always have those feelings. Yeah. And then at the at your end and you're like, all right, it was fun to be together as yeah, a church. Right. All right, God shut up. That was yeah. good. So how about yourself? So we're in week three of a series called This Changes Everything. And uh, we're borrowing a lot of a lot of writing from John Ortberg and Dallas Willard. And uh, so this this was really all about. You know, the classic John fifteen five, I'm the vine, you're the branch, yeah. if you remain in me. So the whole idea was sort of like, what does it mean to actually remain in Jesus? I started talking about different kinds of apples. You know, being from Michigan, you can actually develop like a real kind of apple snobbery. Really? Just, yeah, I think that they're just, awesome. they're just the best. But I talked about the soil for an apple needs to be like very specific. And, yeah. the, and the warmth has to be warm, but not too warm. And the soil has to be wet, but not too wet. And it, it requires some very specific environments and the quality of the apple determines the soil it's planted in. And I said, we're kind of the same way. Like mm-hmm. what we're actually rooted in, what we're planted in, determines the kind of fruit we're going to bear or if we bear fruit at all. And so I thought it was interesting because a lot of people know John fifteen five, right? Remain in me. Yes. And that word, John uses that word a lot. Just It means to kind of abide, to just hang out with. But just the chapter before it, John 14 says, I will ask the Father to send you another helper, the Spirit of Truth, who will remain constantly with you. The world does not recognize the Spirit of Truth because it does not know the Spirit and is unable to receive him. But you do know the Spirit because he lives with you and he will dwell in you. So I was like, this withness goes yeah. both ways. I mean, remain constantly with you is such a compelling promise that it's not just, hey, try really hard to remain yeah. in Jesus, which is how I think a lot of us end up feeling. He's like, no, I'm going to send the advocate, the helper, who's also going to remain with you. So we talked about what does it mean to actually be present with Jesus, to actually be formed into his likeness and not just know things about him, which is, I think, a helpful distinction. I think a lot of us, myself included, we do things for God and we don't do things with God, Mm. especially like as vocational ministers. We do stuff with like a Jesus stamp on it, but if we're really honest, it's not a partnership. It's a, I'm doing Jesus-y things because that's what I'm supposed to be doing yeah. as opposed to this sort of withness. So I talked a little bit about Brother Lawrence. I don't know if you're a Brother Lawrence guy or not, but when I read the Practicing the Presence of God, it kind of changed my life. So gave some backstory. You know, he entered a monastery, not as a clergyman, but just as a regular guy. Oh, is that right? And he was given like some really lowly tasks, and he just did it with such a peace and such a presence that literally visitors started like seeking him out for spiritual counsel. Wow. And so that he writes this in the book. He says, uh, the time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer and in the noise and clatter of my kitchen with several persons or at the same time calling for different things. I possess God in as great a tranquility as if I were upon my knees before the blessed sacrament mm. kind of saying really what Paul says, right? Whether you're eating or drinking or serving or, lying down or rising, do it all to the glory of yep, God. And yep, we yep. talked about a missionary named Frank Laubach who actually was really uh, transformed by Brother Lawrence who ended up to become this incredible missionary and lived out the same thing. I'll, I'll just read what he says and kind of wrap this up. He says, I feel simply carried along each hour doing my part in a plan which is far beyond myself. 
This sense of cooperation with God in little things is what so astonishes me, for I never have felt it in this way before. I need something, and I turn around to find it waiting for me. I must work to be sure, but there is God working along with me. And if you know anything about his story, he had committed one second to every minute to just being present with Jesus. And wow. it like transformed his life and ministry, and he went on to lead these big, huge efforts to, you know, mainly in the Philippines. And okay. I just thought, man, so often I feel like presence feels counterproductive yeah. in our sort of like Western utilitarian yep. sense. And so we just sort of spent the whole the whole talk and then actually created some space to talk about and actually be present. Like what does it actually mean to be present with Jesus and challenge people. It doesn't, you probably don't have to go join a monastery. Yep. But what if five minutes a day, what if the length of your favorite song, you were just present and you weren't journaling or trying to pray or do anything just to be present with Jesus. And I think that's, uh, I didn't realize how much easier said than done that would be. Right. But I think people, myself included, were really challenged by how little we often actually am just present with Jesus. So I'm challenged by that this Monday. That's, good. that's, <laughs> that's good. one of those sermons that you preach and even as you're preaching and yes. you're like, Wow, I'm going to have to do a lot. Have to do some work, work on this. Yeah, say, yeah, totally. Oh, that's great. I will come it up next. Uh, how do you text Brian? How do I text Brian? I how do you text, text Brian <laughs> <laughs> with expletives? No, yeah. I'm just kidding. Unpacking the battle between raindrop and waterfall texters. If you don't know what that means, you're going to stick around because that's what we're talking about next here in the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hello, lads and ladies. Lads and ladies. I just feel like the music called for it. Lads and ladies. Doesn't this feel a little bit of like a pub in Dublin somewhere? This is the intro and somebody's welcoming you to the establishment. Never having been to Dublin, I would appro- I would guess it's like oh, this. Oh, man, you got to go one day. You went, like, didn't you like uh, go on the cheap or something? And- <laughs> yeah, on the cheap is probably... That sounds more Isn't this expensive. Your story than about peanut did. butter and jelly sandwiches. That is right. That See, is. We know each other. We know each other's. Look stories at now. us. We are real life friends. Check it. All right. So uh, between four and six, <laughs> and, and then we never <laughs> talk to each other. Haven't met each other's wives. Nope. Never seen your children. Nope. That is kind of weird. <laughs> it's a little odd. It's only nine months now. Do people, I, I mean, does anyone else listening find that weird? Or they're like, no, that makes sense. I just think of my when I listen to people or see things like I. You just assume they're besties. Not even, but I assume they like. Hey, let, what are you doing this weekend? Let's hang out. Like, and now that we have this sort of like working relationship, it's like it, it doesn't make any. It makes total sense to me that like we come here, we laugh, we hang right, out, right. we do this, and then, then, we, then we go home. <laughs> like now, it makes total sense. But if you had asked me, like you know, Mike and Mike had that morning show on ESPN right. forever, I was always like, yeah, they're probably really tight. They're probably going to each other's kids' birthday parties. <laughs> they're probably doing. And this. Maybe they are. And I don't maybe know. Maybe they did, but now it's it's funny. It's we funny. Should, we should get them on to ask them. Why aren't you guys friends? (laughs) I mean, they did have a bit of a public breakup, so I wonder. Oh, that's true. That's a good point. All right, before we dive into this, uh, you can find us on Facebook, Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash the common good. I get a lot of questions, by the way. Let me just say this. This is a quick quick PSA. Uh, John does a great job Mm -hmm. of breaking out each. Oh, PJ, producer John. (laughs) Yeah, for those of you who are like, wait, who's John? Uh, Of breaking out each segment. So if you go to 1160hope.com slash the common good, each segment has a description there and the link if there is one is also included so sometimes people are like hey a couple of days ago you were talking about this story or this can you send me the link or could you send me the interview all of that is on 1160hope.com slash the common good it's all organized really really wonderfully john does a lot of work to make that happen so thank you john are you on the mic <laughs> i am now ah thanks john yeah i'm a words of affirmation guy this is this i know you are you thank you so there much you but i know that i've pointed people there yeah and if you just listen on the podcast you don't know necessarily that that's there on the website and I ha- i've had a number of people say 
That's really helpful. I can find, you know, just the one conversation that I was looking for. Well, that's so, a purpose. Thank you. Thanks for doing that. You All got right. it. So here was the here was the uh, the tee up. Uh, how do you text? Unpacking the battle between raindrop and waterfall mm-hmm. textures. Without reading it, by the way, uh, it looks like you've already read it. So do you but think you're – are you a raindrop or a waterfall texter? Uh, I suspect I'm a raindrop. If yeah. I don't actually know what they, these two mean, but I'm guessing. I think I know what they're going to mean, and I'm guessing I'm a raindrop. I think I probably am too. Why, yep. why, don't, you, uh, why don't you take a dive in? Yep. It says, uh, though we may be united in our embrace of texting, exactly how to text is the subject of an often heated <laughs> debate. It's true. It's used, it used to be expensive to send or receive a long text. Many people now, though, have data plans that allow unlimited. Do you remember that when you used to pay like per the text? I do remember But that. now most people, it says, have unlimited texting or unlimited data data for messaging apps. Uh, and even if the texts are costing money, modern phones tend to chain together missives that trans- transcend the 160-character limit of conventional messaging. It's no longer the norm to receive a long text as a broken-up, out-of-order set of fragments. Doing away with the constraints of length and cost has given us a lot more aesthetic freedom. Not surprisingly, people have pretty strong opinions about the right way to text. So, uh, it, it goes, if you're a raindrop texter, uh, you send syntent- syntactical fragments uh, or exclusively a waterfall texture pounding out paragraphs. Uh, oh, I just figured out I'm a waterfall texture, not a raindrop. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, I'll write it all in one text. You will. Yep. Yep. I have a f- close friend uh, who will remain nameless who will send lots of little texts just one after the other. I'm the opposite. I'm a waterfall. Interesting. Now that you see the definitions, do you still think you're a raindrop guy? I think so, probably. I thought this had to do with length of like, I just send one quick text versus I send a long one, but Uh, no, this means over and over and over again. So, (laughs) Uh, Waterfall text delivered in one continuous uh, sheet can be a challenging to take in on a small screen. They often come off as stern or serious. Perhaps they contain a few extra words, but there are times when it's good to be able to take a text to make a text look like a formal or traditional writing. If you're writing to a work colleague or to someone you don't know well, marrying more traditional paragraphing seems sensibly cautious and conveys respect. Uh, Similarly, if you're apologizing, sending condolences, or otherwise trying to convey something heartfelt via text, it makes uh, sense to do so in one long uh, text. However, the same sense of emotion and spontaneity uh, that can render the brevity and irregular rhythms of raindrop text inappropriate for heavy hitting messages can make them ideal for striking a playful and chatty tone or for inviting feedback and conversation like a ball casually tossed back and forth in a short arc. Interesting. Now we all text so much that they're saying it says something about our personality. I think it totally does. I think like any communication, I think uh, like the clothes we wear, the music we listen to, I actually found this paragraph to be really Interesting. So Cecilia Watson is the author, and she said, The fluid, flexible form of the text is a virtue. Kristen Prevalet, one of my colleagues in the Language and Thinking Program at Bard College, points out that texting has affinities with zuhitsu, a Japanese literary tradition in which writing responds to the author's situation or surroundings without having a strictly logical organization, single genre, or analytic argument. So zuhitsu means to follow the brush, to open, uh, to be open to going where the calligraphic is that right how you say that calligraphic calligraphic calligraphy or the mobile keyboard takes your thoughts the artfully controlled freedom of the zahitsu form makes the text a dance in which thoughts can drift like clouds as the writer notes which i think um like even studying scripture when you so i i think i mentioned this before 
my first year as lead pastor at Poplar, we did a 32-week yep. series in Philippians. And it's a deep dive, right? Well, some of the stuff that I realized in my study, though, was that even how Paul wrote various parts of that letter differed. And people would note like the more frantic sense of this sentence or this paragraph and the more serene sense here. And like this, they were even making speculations about the speed with which he was writing this part versus that part. And I thought, I've never really even considered some of the emotionality or the mental state behind the writing. And I think that's a lot of what maybe we're not conscious of when we read someone else's text. Like if you said something like really kind to someone, they responded, K. Yes. You being a words guy would be like, wait a minute. Why are they mad at me? Why? Yep. They? And they might be thinking, like, oh, I just want them to know that I got it, yep. right? Like, it's a very uh, easy thing to interpret without realizing we're interpreting it. And I think that's a super fascinating study in sort of this digital calligraphy where we're like, we're always reading each other, but we're not necessarily yep. cognizant of it. That, that to me, is fascinating. That's interesting. I, and I know with my own texting now, uh, I've become less wordy and I've become much more like, uh, the guy who uses emojis and gifts. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And I think that's probably because I'm like, everything in my life is like, oh, let's make a joke. Let's be lighthearted. And so it's like, uh, I, I don't tend to do a ton of like really serious stuff over text. And mm-hmm. so that's probably a whole nother level to this. But yeah, how we communicate is changing in our culture, right? right like now right. it went from phone calls to email, but now you're much more, I mean, we, you know, I, uh, it might be you, but if not you, then a lot of people in your circle probably uh, the texting is almost exclusively how they talk to people. Right. Uh, and so trying to figure out how to best text and what it all means, I think is going to be increasingly important as the years move on here. I, I did just see a meme recently that said, um, the best time to call me is text. <laughs> <laughs> like, have you ever gotten That's a phone funny. call and you're like, why is this what person calling me? Yes. If it's not an emergency, just please, please don't. Which I'm actually trying to get better at because I think, there actually is a lot lost. There's a couple of people on our staff actually that are very good about this. If there's uh, a text exchange that's getting heated, they'll just say, "Hey, I got to make a phone call. I, I'm just going to call this person. I don't. This is escalating and this isn't helpful." But yep. I do think it's curious that because it's a main mode of communication for a lot of people, that more people aren't actually trying to dissect how is this shaping us. Like I'm always amazed when I get like a long email and at the bottom it says "sent from my iPhone." I'm like, yes. oh, I'm like, oh, I just don't have the Yes. Courage or bandwidth or wherewithal. I don't like writing long things on my phone at all. And maybe that makes me an old curmudgeon. Maybe that's just sort of how I'm wired. But either way, uh, we'd love to know, are you a raindrop texter or a waterfall texter or something in between? Maybe a sprinkler texter, (laughs) the water slide texter, ice cube texter. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of other water analogies. But either way, this is just something that I thought was interesting and kind of understanding how does language shape yeah. us and what do we actually do with it? And uh, hopefully that was interesting for you. Well, you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. we got a lot of interesting stories coming up next that you're not going to want to miss. So stick around for that second hour here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Well, hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. I got a little sudden there. Don't know what happened. Now I can't get out of it. I'm going to have to do the whole second half of the show. 
Have you ever done that, by the way? Like talked in an accent for so long that you couldn't actually couldn't make stop. out of it. Yeah, I had a buddy. So, but a buddy of mine said that he had a friend in high school, and again, this is like five degrees removed. But freshman year of high school started doing an accent and did it so much that by senior year he couldn't. No stop. way. Like it literally just embedded itself into his. He might have been messing with me. This might not be a true story. What is the John Cusack '80s movie where? Uh, where the girl, the the whole joke about like if oh, you're making right, a face right. and someone hits you on the back, uh, does that say anything? Is yeah, I that, think so. Is I that think one so. of those? Yeah, maybe. And, uh, <laughs> and that makes me feel the same way. Like, oh, if you do it too long and then you get hit in the back, it's going to keep a, well, with an accent. And then, oh, all of a sudden I have a southern accent. I'm not proud of this, but if like if I am having a conversation with someone from, let's say, the UK, it is very, very hard for me to not start speaking with a British accent. Right? I have to be very conscious. There's like this quiet inner monologue that like, don't, don't, don't copy. Do don't copy the accent. <laughs> don't do it. Is that all accents or just something about the British? You like the British Yeah, accent? maybe something specifically about the British accent. I don't know. Either way, I should never have admitted that over the air at all because someone's going to call me on it. But what are you going to do? Uh, uh, we're definitely going to hear that we're wrong about saying anything. That's going to be... Yeah, for sure. That'll be the biggest outrage that we I get. I know it's a John Cusack movie from the 80s. We'll go with that. All right, so you may or may not know this, but yesterday was World Day of Migrants and Refugees, and uh, that's a topic that Brian and I have tried to tackle a couple of times while fully admitting that it's a very complicated conversation, and like when Matt Sorens was in, he he's just a treasure trove of information and wisdom and just such a humble dude. I, I really appreciate that posture. But I I, uh, I submit to you, Brian, a couple of articles uh, in regard to this day that I'd love for us in a couple of minutes that we have to just kind of unpack a little bit. So uh, why don't you walk us through it? Uh, yeah. Out of the New York Times, they introduced this fact that uh, President Trump slashes refugee cap to 18,000, curtailing U.S. role as haven. So let me just we'll introduce this just a little bit. It's always uh, this topic, I always feel like uh, like I'm always a little bit out over my skis. Like this is one <laughs> yes. that with refugees and immigration and everything. That's why Matthew Sorens was so helpful because I remember thinking to myself, oh, man, there's so much I don't know. There's so much I don't know. So yep. <laughs> we're going to use that as a preface to this here a little bit. President Trump has decided to slash the American refugee program by almost a half. Uh, greatly dimming the United States role in accepting persecuted refugees from most parts of the world, the State Department uh, announced last week. The administration said it would accept 18,000 refugees during the next 12 months, down from the current limit of 30,000 and a fraction of the 110,000 that President Obama said should be allowed in the United States in 2016, his final year in office. Even that low figure can overstate the number of slots that could be open for unanticipated crises, since many of the openings have been allocated. The Trump administration will reserve 4,000 refugee slots for Iraqis who worked with the U.S. military, 1,500 for people from Central America, and 5,000 for people persecuted for their religion. Uh, The additional 7,500 slots are for those who are seeking family unification and have been cleared uh, for resettlement. So they go on to say that will eliminate many opportunities for people fleeing war and persecution throughout the world to resettle in the United States, which until Mr. Trump took office was the world's leading destination uh, for refugees. So the change in policy is a big deal, right? This uh, change uh, in policy is a big deal. Did you even know about those caps and this? And I know Matthew Sorens talked to us about that, but before that, I wasn't even aware about caps and levels and any of that. Yeah, we had Shannon Wentz in the show, I think, one of the days that you were gone. True. And she also partners with World Relief. If you're not familiar, Matt, Matt Sorens is a part of World Relief, so That's Shannon right. Wentz. And so she, she had kind of unpacked. I had known a little bit of it, but she had kind of really 
I think uh, begin to unpack it for me a little bit. And then, of course, Matthew Soren sort of, you know, like drinking from a water hose gave us all, all sorts of things to ponder. But, yeah, I, I was I was familiar at least. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, that at least appears to be a big deal. It's going to be harder to come in. And, again, depending on what you think of policies, uh, you may think that's a fabulous idea. You may think that that is an absolutely uh, awful thing that we're doing as a country. And then America Magazine uh, last week, kind of in response to this, wrote an article after faith leaders border visit, the resolve to help migrants grow. So it talks about some of these faith leaders. Well, yeah, let me can I kind of read a little bit of it. I would love it. I think it's really well written and actually kind of helps provide some color to just Perfect. the raw data of it. It starts, it says, a child dances to Mexican folk music during an outdoor mass in a chili field September 26, 2019 in Hatch, New Mexico, during a pastoral encounter by U.S. bishops with migrant uh, with migrants at the border. The September 23rd to 27th pastoral visit, sponsored by various offices of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops and other national organizations, aimed to highlight the church's ministry to migrants, mm. the border conditions, and immigration laws affecting them and their material and spiritual needs. A group of U.S. Catholic bishops, along with a Vatican representative and other priests, celebrated Mass September 26th next to a field of chili peppers. They blessed the workers' hands. They blessed mm. the water that nourishes the famous Hatch Chili Peppers, for which the town population 1,680 is known, and they blessed the fields where the migrants toil. The faith leaders' visit came the same day the U.S. Department of State announced the Trump administration was capping refugee resettlement at a historic low of 18,000. Mm. The new limit only affects refugees applying for asylum in the U.S. from overseas, not at the border, but immigration advocates took it as another sign the nation is closing its doors to newcomers. In New Mexico, the town citizens welcome the bishops as well as the, the women religious with other lay members of the Catholic Church who travel with them with smiles, songs, dances, and great amounts of homemade food from their famous product. Uh, but they also shared the difficult moments they recently faced when a group of migrants arrived in a nearby town and some townsfolk stepped in to help. Not everyone in town was pleased, and some parishioners at the local Catholic church spoke of being afraid of catching illnesses from them. Others worried about what their neighbors would think if they found out they were providing them with shelter. Uh, we had them hiding in our homes, Crystal Gonzalez told the group, adding that it reminded her of what she had read mm-hmm. as a sixth grader in the diary of Anne Frank. The tale was one of many stories of hardships and fear the group heard in a week of visits organized by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops Subcommittee on the Pastoral Care of Migrants, Refugees, and Travelers. So I share all of that. It's a much longer article, and it's on the Facebook page. I encourage you to read it. Yeah. But to share that there are faith leaders that are taking very strategic steps to not just advocate for some of these things, but to actually kind of enter into the stories to gain what you're kind of saying is like a better understanding of something that you and I have like a teensy tiny cursory understanding of which yeah. I, I think is worth repeating but I, I don't know how do you how do you take that first page of the story and the the response of certain faith leaders to actually kind of be boots on the ground here I think it is uh, regardless of what you believe about policy I think the church needs to uh, be at the front edge of this whether it's part- partnering with organizations like world relief or doing things it becomes hard for pastors like in churches like ours you know, we're in the Midwest. We don't live on a border. And it can be really easy. That doesn't take away uh, our responsibility to care for those who are hurting in the least of these. Uh, but it, it could become easily uh, out of sight, out of mind, right? You read these articles, you're constantly reading about El Paso and right, you're reading about right. other places. Uh, but it's great. You know, I, I think there's something to be said about these faith leaders went there, had their hearts broken by what they were seeing and said the church must do something. And I don't think the church can count on the government to lead on this, right? And so therefore, uh, the question the church has to ask is, what is the heart of Jesus towards people who are seeking asylum and who are refugees? What's the heart of Christ? 
and then how do we act accordingly? Yeah, I'll just I'll end with this with the yep. time we have left. This is how this is how the article ends. It says uh, Bishop John E. Stowe of Lexington, Kentucky, said during a September 25th news conference that he was glad the meeting had taken place on the border and in the El Paso diocese because it has given an example to the whole country about how to welcome immigrants, how to love immigrants, how to clothe immigrants, how to provide shelter for immigrants, how to treat them as brothers and sisters. That's what he said. It's terrible to know that there are some 55,000 people waiting on the other side of the border because they can't come across, Bishop said. Uh, it was just months ago that there were thousands of people coming across the border and flooding the city, and they were received in shelters through the, throughout the city by people of faith who reached out not only by our Catholic church, but other churches in town reaching out and serving them, and they did so with love. That's a beautiful example for the whole country. It's what our nation was founded on, and it's specifically important for our Catholic Church. As the Church celebrates World Day of Migrants and Refugees, it's time to call attention not only to the problems along the border, he said, but to adverse situations for migrants and refugees around the world. That's what he said. But as Americans, we have a particular obligation because we promised asylum. We've held ourselves up as a beacon for the downtrodden, the oppressed in the world. How can we let them stand on the other side of the border? How can we let them stand there and wait? How can we be indifferent? Thank God for the church and churches in El Paso that have given a beautiful example. That's great. And I personally, I'm challenged by that. I know this is a, a topic that is big and broad and something that you and I want to do more in uh, trying to understand, but I think it's something that uh, I want to always try to keep kind of at the out front. Yep. So coming up next here, here's a headline that you may not expect from this show. Five rules. <laughs> or you may. Five, yeah, maybe you do. Five rules for hosting a crappy dinner party. So that story and much, much more is coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. Or if you're just joining us, welcome to The Common Good. I don't want to presume that you've been with us the entire nope. time, but you should have been. Yep. You really should have been. Hey, uh, we've got to find audio. I just thought of this from PJ. <laughs> Not for today, but down the road. Okay. Uh, somebody was posting some, uh, like, uh, um, a speech or whatever that the Pope did in Rome this week. Yeah. And uh, he was talking to particularly uh, particular scholars and people who work in ethics of technology. Let's see where this is going. And he spoke of it, of ethics of technology for the common good. Mm, thanks, <laughs> so if Francis. Could, if we could get Francis saying the common good, I think we're in. I think we're done. I mean, I, we, didn't we have a dream months ago? We found Trump doing it. But th- weren't we going to actually like make a, like a compiled list we of need people to do saying? That. We need to go back. We I, need to do that? I don't know that we could top the Pope doing that. That's but. true. That, that might be uh, the creme de la creme. There you go. But All anyway. Right. So you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, slash The Common Good, all over the World Wide Web. But here is what I teed up a little earlier. Five rules for hosting a crappy dinner party, in parentheses, and seeing your friends more often. Let me just uh, let me just read a little bit before we dive in, because I think that you will resonate with some of this. Uh, I love having friends over, but with three kids, big writing dreams, the never-ending onslaught of preparing and cleaning up, breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, (laughs) snack, 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 snack. (laughs) Having a friend over for a meal started to feel like too much work and less like the break that I craved. I'm not a neat freak or a perfectionist by any stretch, but having company came to mean clearing a path and the explosion of crafts and creations on our floor, folding the mountain of laundry on the couch, and finding the source of that questionable smell. I started to feel grumpy when preparing for visitors, snapping at my kids to pick up their underwear and wipe the toilet seat for crying out loud. In one part of my brain, I knew that this reaction was ridiculous. My friends were coming to see me, not my home. They would understand the scribble marks on my hardwood and my nine-year-old's unmade bed. But the other part of my brain said that pride in ownership Mm. is a healthy thing and germs are not. 
Then I discovered the crappy dinner party. So before we actually dive into what that actually is, do you resonate with this at all? Or is this more you do? So like some of the anxiety of like this house better look better than it does right now. Yeah, I would say I resonate with it. And uh, if I could speak for her, I think that my wife uh, feels this burden a lot more. Okay. And so uh, when we talk about having people over or do have people over, I can tell it causes her, it causes me some stress, but it causes her a great amount of stress for this reason, right? Like y- you can have a messy house and other things in a bit of disarray through because of the the, st- the craziness of life. Right. But none of us are like, hey, I want to welcome other people into this, you, you, no matter how close you are to them. And that's what I think this is getting at. Uh, and becomes a challenge for for a lot of us because, you know, I think a lot of us have been raised that when you have people over, you you dust and you vacuum and you put everything away and get right. everything you know kind of needed up, neat up, and that becomes a real burden to even trying to get your mind around. Well, Kelly Powell, the writer of this article, talks about a friend that moved away, and then sort of this idea, this pitch for getting together with just no preparation, no stress, and they're like, all right, let's try it. And she talks about her her husband told me I couldn't do it. He said, you'll be cleaning and chopping frantically at the last minute. She's like, nope. And it says, minutes before the first crappy dinner party at our house, my seven-year-old son trudged through the house in his muddy shoes. And she said, I'm so cool with that. My nine-year-old announced he was going to begin a messy, gluey, paint-filled project in the living room. <laughs> I think like the husband put him up to this. <laughs> right, right. No prob, I said, sipping a glass of wine. So, like, she's facing a number of the things that a lot of us imagine, you know, if you have kids, even if you don't have kids, just the... The stress of like, oh, my gosh, the people are coming over, which, you know, my wife and I, I think we both feel. She's actually much better, I think, at just saying, hey, just leave. That's fine. Just leave it be. Yep. They don't they don't actually care. But I want to get to the rules, and then maybe if we have time, we'll unpack a little bit about, like, why is this so difficult? Mm-hmm. Because having traveled a good deal now, this is something, I think, very unique in the West. I, I've been to a lot, of, a lot of places in the world where it seems like when they say, hey, come on over any time, they actually mean any time. When we say come over any time yeah. in America, we mean – Let's but get let our, know right, let's get our Google calendars together and we'll plan for something yeah. eight weeks in advance. So here, here we go. Ready to plan your own crappy dinner party? Here's how to do it. And because we're from southern Ontario, we needed to make rules. So number one, no housework is to be done prior to a guest arrival. Easy or not easy for you? Oh, that would be really difficult. Yeah. It would be, <laughs> yeah, because the, it for me, it's usually like, do we do a little bit of housework or a lot of housework? Right. Not no housework right, because... Right. Uh, yeah, no, this would be very difficult. Uh, number two, the menu must be simple and not involve a special grocery shop. So, like, you know, no fancy cheeses, I guess, or something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know. Yep. Yep. I'm, so, I'm so, like, run-of-the-mill anyway, I wouldn't even know what would Yeah, require. number two would be a lot less difficult for me than number one. Number one, I'd be fine having people over and just ordering pizzas or oven pizzas. Right. Like, that's fine by me. So I'm, I'm good with number two. Uh, number three, you must wear whatever you happen to have on. That might not be safe. You know, I'd be wearing this blue hooded sweatshirt. Yeah, <laughs> at all times. I might be shirtless. That's, that's what I was, whatever you have. That's on what I mean. Aesthetically, yeah, don't right, have on. right, right. Yeah, I wonder how strictly they hold to that rule. Uh, number four: no hostess gifts allowed. As someone coming to someone else's house, I would really struggle with that. I always want to bring something. Do you really? Oh yeah, I don't always flowers or a bottle of wine or something. Yeah, flowers always feels like too like romantic. Dady. Yep. <laughs> So I usually go bottle of wine. Okay. Bottle of wine or, uh, you know, some kind of. It's funny. I, 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 I regularly, uh, these are, that's someone I don't often think about. My wife would be like, hey, we need to pick something up. I'm like, we do? 
Really? She'll just look at me. Yeah, it's just a blind spot for me. It's a blind spot. Don't invite us over. But she's telling you, though. It's no, not... Then we'll go get it. Oh. But I, up until that point, I, it never is like, all right, we got to factor in time to go pick up X oh, for these people. Oh, yep. interesting. Yeah, that's, I don't, I, that's probably my parents. Uh, and then number five, you must act like you're surprised when your friend and their family just happen to show up at your door. And this one is optional. So just a quick recap. Five rules of the crappy dinner party. One, no housework is to be done prior to a guest arrival. Two, the menu must be simple and not involve a special grocery shop. Three, you must wear whatever you happen to have on. Four, no hostess gifts allowed. And number five, you must act like you're surprised when your friends show up. What do you think overall of this concept? And why is this like so counterintuitive to our like modern sensibilities? Oh, I think it's great because right, what do we even talk about here in our churches and on the show right. all the time is like authentic community. Well, how do you bring about authentic community if I always have to put my best foot forward and make everything look perfect before right. you're allowed in my house at all times? Right. And uh, so I think that's why this is important. Like, it's really hard to really have community with people if there's, you know, a full day's worth of cleaning and organizing and <laughs> cooking that has to be done before you can come over. Yes. Uh, but it's difficult because that's how we're conditioned, right? We all are conditioned on some level. Uh, you know, if my house is in disarray and my kids are going crazy and everything's nuts at my house and you come over and then you leave, pretty sure you're going to be talking about how my house was in disarray and my, (laughs) and none of us want that, right? Right. We want to look like, and so So it's like image then it's like, and I don't even mean that in a bad way. Like a lot of times like, Oh, don't worry about you. Like you want people to be like, well, you know, they can, they can handle life a little bit, but when that becomes the block to ever having your friends over or ever hanging out with your friends, I think. It's a recipe for loneliness, I think, and it is something we do. I would guess that this writer, she talks about one particular woman. I doubt that she does this with all of her friends. Right. I think this, and this is another concept. I think it's kind of the concept of uh, of family, right? We talk about we want to have friends who are like family. Well, family, you can't clean up every time your family comes over and every time this. And uh, so it kind of gets to the expectation of friendship. What do we expect out of our closest friendships and uh, I think this is a really interesting thought that probably some people out there would really struggle with. Well, and here, here's how she ends it. I think it's great. She says, crappy dinner is all about placing priority on what truly matters and about accepting life and motherhood for all of the beautiful, crappy things that throws your way. And I think that is, uh, like you had kind of touched on, such a counterintuitive thing for us in a world where our Facebook feed is all of the great things we're doing. Yeah. And our Instagram are all the best angles with the best lighting and the best filter on whatever thing we're doing. And so often it's – I totally understand this impulse, by the way. Like I want people to have this sense yeah. that well, they're happy and successful and at peace. And whatever adjectives you would add, I want them to know how holy I am or how <laughs> wealthy I am or whatever yeah. it is. I think that temptation is always there. And to kind of proactively say, you know what? Everyone has piles of laundry at times on the table or on the floor or a kid that ran through and it just you didn't have time to take care of it. And I think like what you're saying, establishing those rules ahead of time is probably a big part of it. But I'm getting anxiety even just thinking about this idea, even though I grew up in a huge family and our house was often a mess, understandably, because there's a billion of us. It's interesting how that still can kind of like that sentiment can still sink its teeth in your heart. Like, yeah, but. I still need to dedicate eight yeah. hours to make sure the house is in good it's shape. So you know? true. Like so, two things. What are the what are these piles of laundry you speak of? And two, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, I think for a lot of us who read this and are like, oh my gosh, this is anxiety. I think the takeaway is you don't need to be actually doing what she says. 
I think get at the root and ask yourself, why does that cause me such anxiety? Yeah, right. What, what is behind the, I would never do that. Right. Uh, and there might be good reasons, but there might also be some dangerous, unhealthy reasons that I think would be an article like this can magnify for you a little and bit. There's probably some Mary Martha stuff in there too, right? Mm-hmm. Where, where Jesus really is saying, hey, you've been frantically preparing, which is totally understandable, but your sister's chosen the better thing. To yeah. just, to just yeah. be present, to sort of hit pause amidst all the things that need to be done and just really, really be present. Way easier said yes. than done, but I think Absolutely. it's important. All right, coming up next, one that uh, my guess is, is going to sting a bit. This is the impact of Western ego on the church. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with the right Reverend Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the World Wide Web. I'm not going to bother you with the details. Just Google it. It'll eventually show up. Also, a little inside baseball here. Uh, I have completely forgotten to do all of our <laughs> liners. self out. I, I am. It's, it's my fault. So I'm going to read all of them right now. You ready? Uh-huh. It's about, we're about to go to liner How about heaven. I read one while you read one? We just do them more efficiently. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time, just sort of like open corporate As prayer. Go, they got to try to listen. <laughs> like, I think I heard a Greg Laurie in there. Yeah, Did he say the word touchdown? Two, I can't two, tell. Two, I heard. All right, here we go. Ready? Liner marathon. Let's do it. <clears throat> First up, Greg Laurie has written a new spiritual biography of Johnny Cash. Download a free preview now at 1160hope.com. Keyword cash. Ready? Coming up next. Here we go. The 222 Foundation provides <laughs> seminary students training, scholarship, and spiritual nourishment and would like to extend a special invitation to AM 1160 listeners to attend a limited access fundraising concert with Keith and Kristen Getty on Friday, October 4th at the Bridge Church in Barrington, Illinois. Visit 222foundation.org. Up next, Rooted 2019 conference is taking place in Chicago on October 3rd through 5th at Park Community Church. Uh, They're near North Campus. Visit rootedministry.com for tickets to this conference for anyone involved in the discipleship of teens or students. Coming up next... Touchstone Magazine presents the 2019 Touchstone Conference, Fight or Flight, The Benedict and Other Options of Facing the World, the Flesh and the Devil, October 10th through 12th in Deerfield. Learn more at touchstonemag.com. How we doing? You're doing great. Dan Frio. Dan Frio. (laughs) 1160mortgage.com. If you need a mortgage, this one's for free, by the way. Dan's awesome. Every time I hear his voice, I'm like, yeah, I'm glad we work with that guy. 1160mortgage.com. He will get you in the best of shape. Here we go. Uh, so what do we say this one's called? The Impact of the Western Ego on the Church. Yep, written by Mandy Smith at Missio Alliance. Who we've had on the show before. Yes, and uh, she begins the article this way. I don't know many Christians who have ego issues, at least not in the sense that they talk about how great they are or have an overinflated sense of their own perfection. In fact, we're all pretty hard on ourselves, and yet when I read... How the contemplatives like now in Merton or Roar describe ego, I think we as first world Christians have some deep habits mm. that get in the way of things that we so desperately want our, in our faith and in our churches. And she says, and when we are confronted with a bad habit, we do what we always do. Work hard to overcome it. Make a goal, set action steps, jump into action. And that in itself is actually the bad habit. Oh, so there's kind of the underscoring here. Um, and so she goes on to describe Challenging question, respond. Painful conflict, respond. Overwhelming problem, respond. Uh, And here's the kicker here. Contemplatives talk about ego as that instinct in us that assumes it's all up to us. That's good. It's that habit that jumps into action, assuming every problem is solved by human initiative, ingenuity, hard work. Our overuse of our own person of our personal agency speaks volume about where our hope is 
and who we think is running the show. This self-sufficiency is so deeply ingrained in our psyche, we can't even remember when we learned it. So let me pause there as I knock my cup over. Let me pause there and uh, say, do you believe, do you, uh, what do you think about her description of ultimately this kind of problem of ego uh, being more defined as self-sufficiency that we think it's kind of all up to us? I, th- I think she's spot on. I, I don't think... I mean, personally, I don't hear a lot of people who outright talk about how awesome they are. Yeah. Most people have a, enough social sense to know, even if they think it, like, I'm not going to say that. That would be insane. But this sort of self-sufficiency, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, we're going to strategize our way out of this hole, I, I think is actually a very, a very Western way in yep. general of going about it. And she says, so what's the answer then? Passivity? The fact that we can't imagine anything apart from the extremes of total responsibility or total passivity is part of the problem. Of course, (laughs) as adults, we can't be passive. There are kids to raise, bills to pay, and as faithful followers of Jesus, we can't be passive. There's a message to share, a community to serve, and so we engage, as we've been taught by our culture, take on full responsibility. And as we do, we burn ourselves out physically, emotionally, spiritually. It breaks our bodies, our marriages, our mental health, our faith. Our leaders fall from grace. Our churches collapse. It doesn't look like good news, only doubt, depression, anxiety, and disappointment. So what if there's something better? What if there's a third option beyond the false self, uh, self-extremes self of hyper-engagement or under-engagement? Mm. What do you think that third option might be, Brian? Well, I read ahead, so let oh, me tell you about little the third cheater. option. All right, as you were giving us all of those, uh, all those of liners. Those, uh, liners. Uh, she says, "What basically, what if there's a third option? And he, she says... Uh, talking about God, he says, and God invites us to partner with him in his work. He provides our minds, the ideas and the words he provides in our environment, the opportunities and resources he provides in our bodies, the gifts and the energy. Someone else is making all things new, coursing through every living thing, bringing healing and flourishing. And he invites us to partner with him in his work. And she goes on to describe it this way. Our habit is respond, respond, respond. She says, but the way of God invites us to rest, receive, respond, oh, that's to good. rest, receive, respond. And so you said it's good and I agree with you, but talk, uh, flesh out why you think this is so helpful and so good and also countercultural. Well, I think because it's not just that we're like hardwired for response. I think that's part of it. But I think it's the thing that we celebrate, right? Like we, mm. when you look at someone's calendar, when was the last time you saw someone give accolades to someone else and said, man, I really appreciate how much time you've carved out for downtime or rest or yeah. family time. Like what we tend to say subtly or overtly is like, wow, look at how busy you are or look at how in demand you are. Look at all the things you're doing mm-hmm. or accomplishing. And, and again, I'm not saying any of those things are bad. And I don't think she's saying that either, but this idea of like what we celebrate and what we glorify tends to be output, tends to be production, tends to be in what ways we're responding. And in a lot of ways we have to be responding. I think there's a lot of things that need urgent responses from yes. the church that we shouldn't say, hmm, I'm going to think about that for a couple of years and get back to you. Like, no, there are crises that the church does need to open its mouth and respond to. I'm not saying that's not ever the case. Yep. But I also think that if you look particularly like in the creation account, the first full day for Adam and Eve for these first humans is rest. It's not, it's not like recovery from all the work they've done. They begin with a posture of rest, which I think is deeply tied to like a full understanding of our identity of who we really are before we can actually accomplish anything. And I think when we get that order reversed, Hmm. I think the reason that we're often hyper obsessed with responding is because, and maybe we wouldn't say it this way, 
it's deeply ingrained to who I believe myself to be. Your identity so and your of, worth. Of yes. course I'm going to keep chasing after it because if I don't if I don't chase after that, then who am I and what am I doing here? And I think that gets really murky really quickly. Yeah, absolutely. She ends the article this way. Uh, yes, there will be churches to plant and good news to share and neighbors to serve and many ways to apply our gifts. We will have both exhilarating and exhausting days. But ours is not the impetus, but the obedience. Our action is not the beginning, but in response to all that comes when we take up our cross daily. Our daily call is to die over and over again, to present our bodies as living sacrifices, to open our ears and soften our hearts. And when our ears are open and our hearts are soft, we will receive calling and direction and ideas and opportunities. They may not look like what you expected, but now it's our task to obey, to follow, to work with all our heart at something that someone else began. Mm. It will take everything we have, but it will be possible because we know we're not alone. In this death of our ego, we will be lost and we will be found. And by some miracle, the world will see someone else in us. Like yeah. That is when we read that, that feels like uh, a breath of fresh air. But yet then we go back into the grind and kind of the grind. Right. So I, I guess as you read something like that, how do you apply that? How do you make the necessary changes to actually begin to live in that type of way? I, honestly, and this is going to sound super hokey. I think it begins first by asking God for the courage to do it. Mm. I don't think it is a, I'm going to will myself. I'm going to muster up the courage to live completely counterculturally. I think it has to first even begin almost ironically with admitting the fact that like, God, I can't, I don't even desire this apart from your influence on my yep, life. Yep. I desire, at least Ian Simpkins does, to be a workaholic, to constantly mm. achieve and go after things and climb more mountains. And like, so even if you're at a place where like, I don't even know that I desire a, a rest, reflect, respond, maybe that's our beginning point. Like, God, I'm not even at a point where I want to make these changes, yeah. begin to change my heart in a way that it even desires these things. And I think part of what she talks about here is, you know, the story of scripture is our need for God. And that's at the center of the gospel story. And there's a lot of like plural you language use that we need each other too, that we're meant to do this thing together. Yeah. And I think when we forget that, when we miss that, it's really easy to become sort of these siloed, you know, human doings, not human beings, mm. right? Where we're, we're only the sum of our accomplishments. And I think when we're not paying attention to the people around us, it's really easy, I think, to get myopic. There. Absolutely. It's good. Well, how about a hard right turn to yeah, land a plane? Gonna be, <laughs> we're going to be contemplative. We're going to be this kicker. I know. I'm, like, I'm, I'm wearing sackcloth and ashes right now. And we're going to round the corner, and we're going to land the plane the way we always do with some interweb insanity, stories we've not seen, sound effects we have not heard. And that's how we're going to wrap up today on The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Hey everyone, that wacky music can mean only one thing. It is the end of the show, but don't bail on us yet. You know, a lot of labs, a lot of, I think you snorted last time we did this. Oh. Am I recalling that correctly? Probably. Yeah, someone's like, I gotta go back and find that now. We yep. should have We should have a compiled list of our reactions to these stories. Every now and then these snort, these, these stories, <laughs> these stories are snort worthy or we call them snorries. Oh. <laughs> I think you just coined a phrase, Brian, from. so. All right, if you're just joining us, the way that we wrap up the show are stories that our producers found that we have not seen. Uh, These stories are face down on the desk, so we're going to read them sight unseen, and then we'll point to the booth. They'll play a sound effect that we had no idea was coming. Sometimes they're awful. Sometimes they're like borderline irreverent, but they're always yeah. a good time. They're always and funny. Brian Fromm's going to kick us off. Alabama. Okay. 
Officials detained naked man on Birmingham airport tarmac. Ooh, we're off on a we're, we're off and running here. Sleepy eyed he, airline. He was, yeah. Sleepy eyed airline passengers in Alabama were startled Thursday morning by the sight of a naked man on the tarmac. The incident occurred at 5:30 a.m. Thursday at the Birmingham Shuttlesworth International Airport. According to authorities, the man, who was not identified, told police he was robbed in the area and wandered onto airport property. The man was taken into custody, and police learned he had an outstanding felony probation violation warrant. Passenger Stephen Reeve said he was on a Delta flight bound for Atlanta and said the plane's captain made an announcement. The captain made an announcement that we were standing by because of an unauthorized person on the ramp. I went back to reading, and then the man in 1B pointed out the window and saw that the man laying on the tarmac. Reeves was one of several passengers who snapped photos of the incident and posted it online. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. That sounds about right. I mean, he couldn't be identified because where would he keep his ID? Uh, yes, yes, yes. Just naked. All right, Virginia. A woman says she was stopped by Squirrel, who tugged on her leg and led her to help its injured babies. Oh, uh-huh. this is going to be nice. This is nice. Police in Virginia had high praise for a local animal whisperer who said a squirrel led her down a trail, even going so far as to tug at her leg to help its injured baby. According to the Pulaski Police Department, Tia Powell told them she was walking on a trail when she was approached by a squirrel that appeared to be friendly. Powell told police the squirrel stood in her way, and she noticed that it was actually trying to get her attention, which is when she was led down the trail to a baby squirrel with an injured leg. Oh, well, to make matters more complicated, Powell said a cat was looking nearby, ready to pounce on the helpless animal. Cats. cats. Come on. According to the police department's Facebook post, Powell said she didn't think there was anything she could do to help, but when she tried to leave, the mother squirrel followed her and allegedly tugged at her pants as the cat waited for the right moment to strike, the Pulaski Police Department said they eventually received a call from Powell and sent officers to the scene, that seems like a lot, where they launched a rescue mission to bring the two squirrels to safety. Squirrel! <laughs> That's the whole drop. That was awesome. Next Did, one. I feel like John started doing these drops. Are we right? These are all still Keith? <laughs> this is all Keith. Man. That one made me laugh. Squirrel. That one made me laugh. Of course it did. Georgia. Woman pumping gas kicked in head by deer. Holy cow. A Georgia, I almost snorted there. A Georgia woman went to fill up her gas tank before work Wednesday morning when an unexpected thing happened. Yeah, Linda Tennant so. told News 4 Jax she was pumping gas in Brunswick when a deer leaped over her head, kicking what? her in the process. Oh my! I thought I was being robbed. I reached up and grabbed my head. I thought I was bleeding. The hoof hit when she wasn't looking, taking her by surprise. Yeah. She stood there uh, for a minute to process what had happened. Despite everything, uh, she told the news for Jack she was in good spirits. You know the funny thing? I was just worried I was going to be late for work. Oh Tenant said the deer ran off. Now she has a story to tell her co-worker. Oh! A deer! A female deer. <laughs> she has a story to tell or a snorry to tell? Is that what you called it? I want to make sure I get I your... did call it a snorry, but that could, that could mean like it's boring. It oh. caused me to sleep, so we might need to be a little... Yeah, snorty? A snorty? I don't think you should be saying that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> We're going to cut that whole thing. All right. Texas fed up grandma pepper sprays arguing couple in her car. Oh, boy. A frustrated grandmother on Thursday used pepper spray to end an altercation between her daughter and the woman's boyfriend. Oh, boy. And they all ended up in the hospital when the spray spread through the car. Yeah, that's what the spray does. That's what it does. The argument took place in front of the Plano police substation at 7501 Independence Parkway. That's very specific. Officers were originally dispatched to respond to the vehicle after a 911 call reporting the fight. Tilly said the SUV ended up in the substation parking lot, though he was not aware the grandmother went there intentionally. Officers also drove there based on the 911 call. The grandmother was in her SUV with her daughter, the daughter's boyfriend, and two grandchildren. Oh, gosh. 
When a spat between the couple got physical, the old woman let loose with her can of pepper spray. All five people went to the hospital. As a precaution, police said no one was seriously injured. She's terrifying. Very I short mean, drops today. Yeah, they're all kind of really to the point, aren't they? Uh, last one is out of Maine. 92-year-old woman crashes car she planned to buy into the... 92-year-old woman crashes car she planned to buy into Maine dealership. A 92-year-old woman crashed a car that she was about to buy into a Maine car dealership. Oh, boy. The front wall of Norm's Used Cars... That's her more stereotypical name than Norm's Used Cars. <laughs> ...was almost completely torn down, and the dealership office was demolished, but nobody was injured. Uh, police officer, Whiskissette police officer, Corey Hubert, said the woman was parking in front of the dealership after test driving a 2010 red Nissan Sentra when she mixed up the accelerator and the brake. The Nissan burst through the building's front wall, pushing filing cabinets across the room and plowing through desks, ceiling tiles and electrical wiring dangled from above. It was literally parked inside the business. He said the woman must have panicked and continued to step on the uh, accelerator because she was burning rubber when they arrived. I've fallen and I can't get oh, up. What a unfortunate really note on to one. end on. Really? Holy cow. Well, maybe tomorrow will be better. Tomorrow, <laughs> here's some of the stories we're going to tackle. A homeless man starts a company, becomes rich, and hires only other homeless people. Also, tithing has become a multi-billion dollar industry. And last but not least, we're going to have to talk impeachment. That and more on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 